Thanks for joining me today for episode 19 of the Northwest Fish Passage podcast. Northwest Fish Passage is a small strategic collaborative partnership of scientists, planners, and engineers. Today I'm here with Emily Howe, aquatic ecologist for the Nature Conservancy. She has been involved in a huge collaborative effort to recover the Stillaquamish River Delta as well as other projects. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining me today. So much for having me. Good to be here. So I'm gonna start with uh, asking you what motivated you to get involved in aquatic ecology? Yeah, when I think about this question, uh, um, it takes me back quite a long ways. I think I am someone who just kind of always drawn to water. I think we did a lot of, you know, outdoor stuff when I was a kid, camping along rivers and sailing in the Salish Sea. And so that the sound of water, like sort of lapping on the shore, sort of slapping on the hull of a boat, or, you know, it can be a roar through the mountains, like on a stream, and it can be raging white caps, and then the next day, calm in a fog. So it's always, it's always changing. Every day is different. Every hour is different. Every part of it is different. And so it just sort of draws me in because it's always in a shift, but there's still a pattern to it. So there's pieces of it that are recognizable all along the way. So um, I think, yeah, I always just, you know, I spent some time out in sort of the Eastern part of Washington too, in the sagebrush country. And that was, I think, when it became very, very clear to me that I'm I'm a Western Washington water person um, and the dry lands are really fascinating, but I I feel most comfortable in the water, around the water, at the edge of it. And I think in terms of aquatic ecology in particular, like, so I'm in my mid forties and I think I'm of that, a generation that has watched some precipitous drops in you know, species and ecosystem functions and sort of have it in my living memory and therefore kind of in my bones. And I think probably a lot of us have that experience and for me, it's the White River sockeye population that comes into Lake Wenatchee. And we grew up um, hunting and camping along that river. And, you know, when I was very small, it was like what we see in the Alaska streams today, right? Just the river was full of red back salmon in the fall. You could wade across it and you had to be careful not to step on them, right? They're all bumping at your ankles, they're spawning, they're doing their thing, and you're kind of in the way, but they're everywhere. And by the time I left for college, you know, we could barely, you'd be really hard pressed to find a spawning pair. So it was one of those experiences that was really stark, just really, really clear that something was off and that there were things that we had done as humans that were causing it, right? Which meant there were things we could do as humans to recover it if we put our minds to it. So for me, like, it almost wasn't necessarily a choice (laughs) to become a when I got to college, it was like, this This is where I need to be. And it just felt right. Thank you. So what is your role at the Nature Conservancy? And uh, how long have you been there? Yeah, I'm, so I, I sit on the science team at the Nature Conservancy. So there's um, a small group of us working on a, you know, sort of a constellation of different projects. And I'm the aquatic and estuarine ecologist there. And I see my job there as really a trans- translational role to 
sort of do cutting edge, you know, forward edge of science work and also work with land managers, water managers, city, you know, conservation planners and to take that, do that translational piece of like, what do we know in the research realm and what do you experience in the management realm and how do we connect those two things together to move forward? So for the conservancy, I think science has to be sometimes out ahead of the conservation work we're doing. Sometimes it has to be looking backwards, doing the reflective post project monitoring or whatever it is. And sometimes it needs to be smack in the middle. And so it's a place where I'm always <laughs> looking forward, looking back, trying to figure out what we're doing and always trying to keep that eye on the like, what is the small piece that we don't yet know of science that will make some level of difference? And what is the small you know, barrier in the management realm? And sometimes there you can create a huge leap and sometimes it's just incremental shifts over time kind of laddering up to a better space of knowledge. So I kind of see that's my role at the Conservancy. So I know you've been doing a lot of work on the Stillaguamish River Delta. So I wanted to start with talking about that and the importance of habitat collaboration and give a little background about that work. Yeah, so the Stillaguamish Delta is a place that I have worked for nearly a little over 20 years. When I was um, an intern out of college, I, I worked for the Nature Conservancy for a couple summers, um, right after they had purchased the property at the mouth of the Silagamish River, which is up near Stanwood, Camino Island area. And we had started with doing plant surveys and just trying to get a sense of the place. And then I returned to that area during my dissertation work at the University of Washington. So my PhD was looking at landscape connectivity through river and estuary landscapes and how does the spatial structure of the place work to either encourage connection in food webs or to kind of break it and just apart and kind of separate it and so the Stillaguamish was one of my sites and then I started working there in um, for the Nature Conservancy in 2017 or so so I've been there seven or eight years and we I had the you know, one of those rare experiences, I think, of the come into a place where I've already worked and know the scientists who came before me. And so they were able to kind of hand the baton to me to kind of take care of in terms of all the monitoring data that was done and whether the first round of restoration that went into place there in 2012 was actually achieving the goals that they had set out to achieve. And we found in some cases, yes right on target and in other places really off target. And so then we began the work of trying to figure out why things weren't quite moving the way that we thought they should. And so the way an estuary works, right, is that you have the river comes down, meets the sea. And in that, you know, in between space of somewhat salty, somewhat not salty water, you have all these feedback systems happening. So fresh water comes down, it's delivering fish, it's delivering detritus, it's delivering sediment. All of that spreads out into the marsh. The plants grow up, they have salinity tolerance ranges. And as the plants are there, and if they're in the good salinity range, you know, they can trap some of that sediment and then it can grow and build over time um, and rise with sea level. But if the river's not going the right direction, it's not spreading out, you have some marshes that are sinking, some that are receding, because either the salinities are too high um, and the 
plants die back and they can't trap it anymore, or the, the sediments aren't getting there. There's nothing to trap in first place. And so we had these issues becoming clear across the estuary through the long-term monitoring data sets. And we also knew as we were watching other restoration projects pop up among, along the Sound and along the West Coast with respect to salmon is that connectivity is like the very key thing. Fish need that connectivity so they can go up and down the river and find the, you know, the sweet spot salinity-wise and food-wise as they go through that smoltification process where they turn from a freshwater organism into a saltwater one. And they need to go up and down the river with the tide and up and down the river with the season when they're small, young fish. Um, and so if they don't have connection between habitats, they kind of fall between the cracks and they don't grow well. And what we knew about our site was that it was originally designed that it should have some connection and it didn't pan out. And we also thought in those early restoration stages, you know, in the early 2000s or so that we would kind of quote unquote, let nature do the work. And so the idea was that the channel systems in these marshes would form themselves and they started to, but what we've learned is that you can't apply river dynamics to an estuarine environment. Mm -hmm. So the erosional rate was just way too slow, particularly given the sort of the state of the Stillaguamish Chinook. We wouldn't have had river channels or tidal channels in our marshes that were equivalent to the restoration marsh or the reference marshes for another 80 years. And the Stillaguamish Chinook are in a are in a rough state right now. We don't really have 80 years. <laughs> and so now most restoration projects put in pilot channels. They dig them out, they get them deeper, they create the braided network, get it started. So the fish have a, like an immediate way to get into that marsh and access those food resources. And those channels are deep enough that there's a greater proportion of the tidal cycle where they can actually be in the marsh before they get kicked out on the low tides. And so we spent a lot of time figuring out how those tidal channel networks should look and how deep they should be and how we could support fish so they could really spread out across the Stillaguamish Delta. And now we're in a state where the Nature Conservancy owns a piece in the very toe of the river and then a lot of them are flat. So there's 4,000 acres of space that the Nature Conservancy owns and manages in the Stillaguamish Delta. And then recently the Stillaguamish tribe was purchased uh, the land just upstream adjacent to us and up to the north and then Zizaba lands up ahead of further up. So there's all told will be 900 acres of contiguous estuarine marsh that will be coming online to join that 4,000 acres that TNC owns. And so suddenly we're in a space where instead of a 150 acre restoration space, we have this huge opportunity to really think about how all these restoration pieces and parcels can come together into one you know, hydrologically <laughs> synergistic unit that can really support fish in a very different way than they do now. So that's been an incredible transformation to watch happen over time in the Silwamish. What are some of your biggest challenges and successes? I think one of the hardest things is to... Um, <laughs> figure out the puzzle of how to do long-term monitoring. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the NSF long-term ecological monitoring sites, LTER systems, and they're few and far between. And they are 
not replicated elsewhere. Um, everybody thinks it's somebody else's job to do long-term monitoring. And no one seems to be interested in paying for it. We did some sort of, it's called design thinking workshops where you are asking sort of open-ended questions, trying to figure out sort of pain points in people's jobs or their managements. And we had actually really done this about a stormwater project I was working on. But what came out of that was uh, literally people said, monitoring is a snore. And yet in the science realm, the long-term data sets are gold. You know, they are where we have figured out what's happening from in the biodiversity crisis, in the climate crisis. They are where we've figured out what kind of management actions are working or not working. And so without long-term monitoring, you're really narrowing your focus and your view frame of what is happening in the world. So there are grant programs out there that explicitly prohibit using their funds to plug in a part of your long-term monitoring work. So everything is on two-year cycles. <laughs> Politically, grant cycles, or so many of them, particularly state funding. And it's really challenging to have, I mean, the ecological cycles don't operate that way. And so <laughs> figuring out like what, what hypothesis can I pose collect the data on, and then analyze in this two-year stint that will move us forward. I think that's one of the most challenging things that I have because everyone wants to know if something works, but whether something works or not isn't gonna happen in that time frame. you won't know. So I think for me, that is the biggest challenge, being an, eco an ecologist really. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the other projects you've worked on? So I work, the common thread I, I would say to my projects right now are what is a salmon experience from mm -hmm. snow caps to white caps? And I unfortunately don't do anything out in the open ocean. So I'm kind of a near, I end in the near shore. So, and I think about what are the, pieces of work that the Nature Conservancy is working on that then might relate to um, a salmon's life cycle. And so water is this common connector. And so the projects that I try to do are, I tr try to think of them as being you know, something that connects to the next uh, ecosystem, maybe downstream. So what are the bridging, what are the bridging questions that need to work together along the ecosystem or a watershed that maybe aren't paired very well yet? So starting at the top of the watershed, I have a project um, looking at the intersection of forest management for fire resilience on hydrologic resilience. So that one is looking at how forest canopy gaps and openings that are being created to you know, open up the forest on the east slopes of the Cascades to make them more fire resilient, looking at how those gaps interact with snowpack depth and duration. In some places of the world, you open up a gap and the snowpack builds up deeper and lasts longer on the landscape. And in other places, you open up a gap and that the tr trees are no longer there to protect the snowpack. So it melts out or it blows away. So we didn't have data on these slopes of the Cascades and all of the salmon on the east slopes are dependent on, those are snowpack dominated watersheds. So everything comes back to whether we had snow, <laughs> good snow year, bad snow year. So that's one project in the headwaters. 
And then moving downstream, I've been working in the urban environments, looking at stormwater pollution and trying to build an interactive spatial map that would identify the hotspots of where pollution is generated on the landscape and where runoff is generated on the landscape. And that would allow stormwater managers to sort of quickly identify where are the best opportunities to put you know, interventions in on the landscape. Maybe it's a swale, maybe it's a stormwater um, retention pond, maybe it's actually a floodplain restoration, but where are the places where pollution is coming from? And can we kind of target those places as they come out of, so as the water rolls off, you know, the hardened city landscapes. And then we move down into the estuary and the piece that I'm working on scientifically right now in Port Susan is a bioenergetics question. So comparing the different restoration plans that we have and the different, so the alternative designs for the Silicon Delta, as each parcel comes online, from a restoration perspective, the TNC ones, the Silaguamish tribe, um, so it's about two, and then this is about three, trying to track what would the insect population be like? What would the fish densities be like? And therefore, and what are the temperatures and salinities likely to be? And therefore, what is the growth going to be? Um, because we know that growth is one of the key drivers of early marine survival, which is one of the key pinch points for Puget Sound Chinook. So, those are kind of the three major projects that I'm working on right now. Kind of, I don't know, some of them are like really zoomed in and some of them are super zoomed out. And I, I kind of like being one of those telescoping people who is like, everything's got to zoom out to something that's meaningful, but it also, all everything happens at the cellular level eventually. So how do you link those scales together? <laughs> um, it's a, it's a fun, um, <laughs> it's a fun place to be, but a challenging one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really interesting, all the work you're doing throughout the watershed. And with those uh, projects, what are some of the examples of collaboration uh, that you've been doing? Yeah, so um, each one of them has been, has a different form of collaboration. Down in the Stilly, we work really closely with the Stiliguamish tribe. So we're on their fish collection permits. And we work really closely with the Skagit River System Cooperative. So they are a natural resource sort of nonprofit government um, entity that works mainly with the Swinomish and the Soxhawtl tribes. But a lot of the fish that end up in the Stiliguamish are Skagit origin. Um, so there's a lot of overlap in those resources uh, like the the tribal, tribal tribal treaty rights resources in terms of the fish moving around, so we work really closely um, with those two entities, and then also with the University of Washington. So that has been we're just drumming up the bioenergetic project um, with all of with that whole group. So it's neat to 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 shift between different perspectives. I think um, in terms of what's important, and then also what sort of resources are available as a research team. Sometimes, you know, we have access to like in the run being designed um, restoration plans because we're an active restoration site. We have, you know, boats and nets in one entity. We've got lots of um, bomb calorimetry equipment and microscopes and IDs in another entity. And um, 
So we all kind of merge together the pieces where we have strengths um, to pull that Silv Amish team forward. And then up, you know, in the snowpack, it's again a, a UW um, intersection and a consulting team from Natural Systems Designs. And one of the things that I found really interesting that I wasn't expecting was that the consulting sort of band of natural resource management is a really important collaborative space there because they're hired um, by counties, by nonprofits, sometimes universities, and they see a really big slice of the world and they have really clear objectives and they have to be, you know, they stay really closely within in the within the rules of what is sort of accepted. And so, and then we, you know, we kind of try to push and understand those rules better with them. But because they have that solid grounding, they're really good uh, place to to do the translational work of research. Kind of, can sometimes be over here, and management can be over there. And then I think that consulting realm is often caught right in between. So I found them to be a very interesting, innovative space to work with. Same thing with the stormwater management tool that we've been doing. Like, like we we couldn't have understood the world very well without one of our colleagues from Geosyntec who is really Christian Nelson. So he's he really knows the stormwater manual inside out and backwards. And then so he can make the, he understands the leaps that we are doing in the stormwater tool that are advancing that whole field in the same way that Susan Dickerson Lang at NSD is doing in the restoration world in sort of snowpack. They both have the research umbrella understood and the management consulting realm understood. And so we can all work together to like, like say like this little tweak would make actually a big difference. So that's been an interesting piece for me to, to kind of learn <laughs> of how important they are as a group of people. What are you most hopeful about in upcoming years? Hmm. I think that there's sort of a groundswell of experience people of people sort of across all realms experiencing the shifts of climate change and the shifts of our ecosystems that kind of were stable enough before that you could ignore them and now I feel like it's very front of mind for so many people and I think what I'm really hopeful about is there's like that you know choir of voices that are saying this we got to do something about. And then we have all these opportunities in the restoration space where we put our own fingerprints on the landscape as humans. And that means we can work on those fingerprints to kind of roll back some of the impacts. So there's an intersection between land and water degradation and climate change exacerbation. And if we can sort of pull back some of our imprints and tend it much better, then maybe we can pull back some of those impacts um, as well. And I think that's a place for me that's really hopeful because it's within the realm of our ability mm -hmm. you know the scale at which humans can affect change what advice do you have for young professionals san francisco bay who had been dragged up on the witness stand during the delta endangered delta smelt hearings and her advice to me at that point in time was just stay true to yourself and stay true to the data that you know. And that I think has been something that I've carried forth 
particularly with Stella Guamish, is that things take time, have patience, stay true to your course, shift it if you know more and learn more, but your convictions are probably right. So stick with it. Don't give up. It's going to take a little while and that's all right. That's great. Mm-hmm. And anything else you want to share? I guess the one thing that um, I'd like to share is a the importance of reciprocation between ourselves and the landscapes. It's something that I think I felt but didn't have words for until I read Robin Wall Kimmerer's Breeding Sweetgrass. Mm-hmm. So she's an indigenous um, writer and biologist, and she talks about that reciprocal relationship. And one of the things that comes forth is that, you know, we need to tend to the lands and the waters if we want them to tend back to us. And there needs to be a reverence and a, and a sense of long-term care. And what I see in the restoration space is a reluctance for long-term care um, and long-term tending. There's a hope that you can do a one and done, pay for it once. And that was a big wall we had to scale for the restoration at Port Susan recently. Things are not built in a way to, you know, grant scoring, for example, in this case, operates on functional acres or acres, not functional acres. And so how do you get the functional piece in there? How do you make sure that it's there if you're not tending, if you're not watching, if you're not listening? So I think there's an ethics change that we need to take in order to sort of shift from a, we're just gonna click these restoration projects off and we'll move on to the next one. And instead think about how we really interact with those spaces. How do we really take care of them? How do we watch them? How do we listen for them? How do we invest in them when they need to shift or they need a little help shifting? So I think that's, you know, a piece that is, I think about a lot. Like how do we, how do we do that tending in a world that doesn't want us to tend? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome. (laughs) I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with a friend. Have a great day.